Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octonom verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Melissa Prieto is a coach, sports performance specialist. She's not just a specialist. She actually holds an MS in exercise and science human performance and is a strength and conditioning coach that has coached different sports on a professional level, including MMA, which is mixed martial arts, soccer, MLS, and she's worked with Nike and Exos Performance. Now, she is currently the head strength and conditioning coach of professional MMA fighters and the international promotions such as UFC, which is the ultimate fighting championship for those of you that are uninformed, Combat Global and Bellator. She's been featured in different combat sports and sports science podcasts in both English and Spanish, and is part of the International Oxygen Advantage International Masters Instructors team. Melissa, thank you so much for being here today. You were, I probably should have just hit record from the beginning. But I think there's some fantastic stuff. So thank you for taking the time. There's, no, thank you for having me. So I've done martial arts since I was 12. I've done mixed martial arts. I've done some other things. And I've instructed people before, but nothing to your level. But what I have found is it seems like there are some people that have this idea that you have to be this old school coach or instructor who doesn't have any like certifications. And that's kind of what works because you've been there and done that. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where people are like, no, I have all these certifications. but they sort of hide behind those like a crutch and they don't really have the experience. They can write out a performance outline, but the actual interaction with that person that's getting ready to compete, anticipating things that they don't see, pointing out their weaknesses in a way where they will actually be willing to take that sort of critique. How do we get to that place? Because you've been doing this for a long time. What is one of the biggest misconceptions that you see when it comes to trainers? That's an interesting perspective and question. But like you said, we have both spectrums, right? We have people that does not have the sports science background. They have the technical background, right? They know the sport. They've been athletes. They've been working with athletes, practicing or teaching the technical aspect of the sport. And then we have people who are just a sports scientist or sports performance like myself, but never being a professional athlete or We've never practiced the sport itself. There has to be a sweet spot right in there. We cannot be on black and white. There has to be some right, like in the middle. There has to be some sweet spot in there. Why? Because we need to understand the sport itself. And I'm going to talk about from the side of sports science and performance. We need to at least try the sport, practice the sport here and there, get to see Get to see the fights, sit down and watch them film, go to see the sparring sessions, go to see the guys practice, just for you to immerse yourself into the sport and know the energy demands of the sport. First of all, if we're going to program for any kind of sport, doesn't matter if it's MMA, soccer, tennis, we need to know the bioenergetic demands, meaning how is energy produced for that sport? What are the demands? 
how does the body functions under certain circumstances or certain stressors? So we need to know in there that way we are definitely knowing, okay, what does this fighter or athlete needs, right? And then we have the other side that technical coaches as well, they need to know how does the body function? How's physiology? What are the demands as well? But from a different perspective, right? They know how to teach the technique, but they don't know how the body produces energy or what are the demands that the sport is causing in the body. So that way, we're not pulling the athlete in opposite sides, which is so common in this sport, especially because MMA is a different monster. It's so complex. It's very intrinsic. And there's so many people around one athlete. Why? Because it's like the decathlon of sports. We have BJJ coach. We have striking coach. We have wrestling coach. We have then the physical therapist, the dietitian, the strength and conditioning coach, the psychologist. So there's so many people around just one person. And it's so easy to get lost. Sometimes one coach does not know what the other coach is doing. They don't know the demands. They don't know the volume. They don't know the intensity of what they're doing in one session or the other. So we kind of start pulling the fighter in opposite ways. And then we can fall into overreaching. Fighters get tired. Fighters start declining their performance. They're not dropping the weight. We're creating maladaptation instead of creating a positive adaptation. So it's very important for both sides to kind of know where we at. We, we need to be very careful when it comes to communication. I would say that's key between components. That way we're not pulling to that mistake of pulling the athlete in opposite ways and not reaching the goal that we want. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And like you said, the strength and conditioning coach for a lot of people, in their mind, the strength and conditioning is the most important part for the athletes. So if they're telling them this, I want you to carb load. I'm not worried about this, this, and this. While maybe the BJJ coach is like, listen, I want you to work on fluidity or work on these different things. And now, like you said, unintentionally, we are pulling the fire in the wrong direction. Or again, if you're trying to say, listen, we want to make sure that the gluconeogenesis is being used now. We want you to reduce your carbs for this particular phase, for this particular outcome. But if the other coaches don't know that, and now they're trying to give them a bunch of like high intensity sprint work, the adrenaline's dumping and they're burning through all the glycogen. And now they're like, oh, I'm lightheaded coach. I don't know what's going on. To a coach who doesn't understand, they're just going to say, we'll keep pushing. That's not necessarily the best case. So I think that's so key. Like you're saying, all the coaches, they need to be almost like a board of directors for the athlete and say, listen, this is how we're training him. He's going to drill in the morning with wrestling. He's going to do striking after that. He's not going to do hard sparring until these days and these days. And now this allows us to be able to set it up in a way that sets them up to win. So they're not overtrained. They don't get injured. And the reality is there is always going to be a point where there's a small tweak here. They may not feel a thousand percent all the time when they step in the ring of the cage, but it's our goal to make sure that they get as close as they can with all these areas sort of peaking as necessary for whatever that performance may be. If they're fighting a grappler and we're really trying to make sure they stay on their feet, we want to make sure that we have the energy demands to set that up, the conditioning that sets them in a position to be able to maintain that kind of pace for five rounds. Yeah, a thousand percent. And honestly, sometimes some coaches have come to me or I've heard like some other coaches telling other coaches saying, well, you're not an athlete. You have never practiced a sport. You've never been a fighter. What do you know about this sport? We know better than strength and conditioning coaches. Well, let me tell you something. We know how the body works. 
we know how those energy demands are causing certain effects or are causing certain adaptations or maladaptations. So we know pretty well how we can auto-regulate intensity, volume, how we can monitor the fires, how we can make um, certain changes or tweaks into the programming. And probably we're the ones who can bridge that gap a little bit better than the technical coaches. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that they don't know what they're doing, but sometimes they have that mentality of if you're not feeling like dying, you're not training hard enough, right? And if we're not doing heart sparring two times a week, and if we're not doing three sessions a day, then you're not doing what it takes to be a professional fighter, which is that mentality of, you know, hustling all the time. And if you're not feeling like dying, then we're not doing it the right way, which it's necessarily not the good way to go. It's not the right path that we want to have, especially with fighters. If we want to make them durable, for them to have a durable career, we need to be smarter than that. There's science now, there's monitoring technologies, there's so many ways that we can play around and really preserve and take care of the athlete at all costs without tearing them down. That's very common even nowadays on big teams. And trust me, I see that on a daily basis. (laughs) Sometimes I'm the one who needs to kind of like step back a little bit and pull back on intensity and volume. So probably I would say strength and conditioning is the variable that can be altered the most in MMA. Why? Because sometimes egos, sometimes we don't get to talk to technical coaches and sit down and say, okay, this fighter needs to step down a little bit, needs to have more recovery days, needs to do more technical work, needs development instead of just going on hard drilling or hard sparring. We need to preserve certain things in their health. So what we do is, okay, we leave egos outside. I do it personally and say, okay, doesn't matter. I'll have to change my session. This is not where I had planned initially, but I'm going to be the one who's going to auto-regulate and do something else because probably right now you're not going to be able to pull the session off because it is what it is. And honestly, it takes daily auto-regulation sometimes with certain fighters. It absolutely does. And like you're saying, so for those of you that don't understand some of this, when we're doing like a technical session, if we're doing technical striking, my hands need to be up, I need to be extending. And if I've just done a heavy strength and conditioning session before that, my glycogen is depleted. Now I'm going to create bad habits. I should be making this technique more refined, more efficient. And instead, because I'm already fatigued. So again, Melissa having the capacity to detach and say, you know what, this coach has said that this is what we're doing because, and and sometimes that's not even the coach's fault per se. It's like, listen, this is just how, where we are in this part of the prep leading up to the fight. So if we're at this place in the camp, and we're looking at film and we realize this fighter does not know how to defend against X, Y, or Z. Now we have to make up a little bit of ground. So again, having the ability to adapt is so important. But like you yep. said, if your ego was big and you're like, well, listen, this is what we're doing. And I don't care what you think. Now, <laughs> not only is that not helping the fighter, but now we're unnecessarily creating this. this Tension. Yeah. yeah. And we're butting heads with people. And you mentioned something before we started. And this is a reality, whether people want to say it or not. As a female, sometimes it may be even more difficult for you to get some of that respect. Is that true? How do you deal with that? Yeah, it's totally true. 
I feel like I've been able to make a name for myself in this industry and put myself in a good position. I would say I've been blessed enough to work with good athletes, high level people. It is not easy all the time. You know, you get some comments from people around the athletes that I work with that, oh, she's a girl, what she knows about MMA, you know, (laughs) all those kind of things. Or she's never been a fighter, what she knows about training a fighter. Is she good enough? There's some comments because I get my athletes sometimes that will come up to me and say, oh, so-and-so asked me if you were like really good, if you were legit. Sometimes I just laugh and what I've done with my career is I just allow my results or the results to speak for themselves. And when I come into a room full with guys, it's just my self-confidence and I know what I'm talking about. I feel confident about it. If people ask me questions, sometimes I might not have the answer. I always say it depends. And sometimes I think that makes you even better as a professional. Because you cannot have all the answers. I think sometimes it's better to say it depends. It depends on so many other things and so many other variables. But always rely on research, science, professionals. If you need to learn more, just ask questions. That's kind of my position. And I feel that me being that way has allowed me to put myself in a better position professionally. Even though, of course, there's people who prefer to work with a guy because It is what it is. But at the end of the day, it doesn't affect me in such a way of feeling, oh, people don't want to work with me. I just keep pushing hard. It's definitely harder, especially in this sport. But I guess, you know, I love being a pioneer, if I can say myself, because there's no many females working as a strength and conditioning coach with fighters, professional fighters. So I guess it's part of my duty, my work as well to open you know a path for other females that want to work in this industry and just for them to come in and see that it's a better place that it's not terrible (laughs) and i think that just like any profession i believe what you're saying is true that maybe especially beginning there's more friction for you to kind of break through that initial level once you're so good that they can't ignore you or they're like you can say or think what you want but this is the person that's going to help me get there this is the person that's going to help me get to the championship, become a contender, defend the title, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Why would you care who it is as long as they can give you what you need? And I think that you're an excellent testament to what that looks like. And we were Thank also you. discussing how the, well, it's the truth. And there's also this component that people don't understand, the mentality of the fighter. The Customato said that it's horrible to see a man defeated by himself and not by his opponent because of his fear, his lack of preparation. And as a fighter, unless they've actually been through it, and like you said, when you're immersed in the culture, you see it. You see the change. They may have a great session, and they may have done great sparring, and now they're in this incredible mood. But if they don't do so well, and it's when they're getting kind of torn down, mm-hmm. now they're kind of this pessimistic. It's like, shit, I'm never going to get there, or this guy's going to kick my ass, or I'm, there's no way I can get to that place. You have to know all those dynamics and understand that with the athlete. I guess I should just ask, how do you deal with that? What's the best way? And I'm sure the answer is, well, it depends. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. But I would say majority of the times, if we're talking about any professional sport, it's more mental than physical. The physical attributes matter 
the physical level of training, skills, abilities, adaptations, all of that really matters because without that, you're not going to be able to be, you know, a professional athlete. But majority of the time, we see that it's a mental issue. Some guys have a lot of mental blockages when they get in there. Sometimes they have all the tools. They have great physique, the physical attributes, the technique, everything, levels of conditioning, of strength. But once they step into the cage, they're gone. doesn't even matter. It's like they never trained. <laughs> or it's like, oh, wow, what happened? We thought that we were like in a good place. But then you find out and then you start like digging a little bit deeper. And it stems from different things. Sometimes it might be family issues. Sometimes it might be when they were a child or a past trauma or there's a bunch of stuff. They're human beings. And like I said, when we kind of started talking is that we lose sight of their human nature. We think of an athlete as this persona of, you know, sometimes like a god or a goddess where they like, they don't get affected by anything, but they do. They're just like you and I, they deal with a lot of stuff in their daily lives, especially MMA. It is a sport where there's not much money in it. So a bunch of my guys, they have to work on top of training. Yes. You yes. know, they have to provide for their families, provide for themselves. Sometimes they don't even have the money to have all those meals prepared in order to fuel properly for their training right. or buying supplements or even paying for training sessions. So we just need to kind of sit down and say, okay, this is like the whole puzzle. And there's a lot of pieces that we need to put together. And sometimes it just goes beyond the physical, the training, the technical aspect of the sport. It's just, it goes beyond that. So my approach to this industry beyond, let's say, putting a program or periodization or creating a program for a fighter is just get to know my athlete. Who am I working with? So it's not just me putting exercises and sets and reps and you're good. No, like, ciao. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> it would be nice if you could just program it, send it to them. Oh, I'll see you Thursday. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you're good to go. It's a little bit more intrinsic than that. It's just getting to know the person that you're working with, the human being. So it's just about creating that bond with the fighter and really building up a relationship to a point where they feel so comfortable telling you stuff that you need to know at the end of the day. Because sometimes I, we don't even talk, but I see them walking in the gym and I know something is off, right? So it's like, hey, what's going on? What happened? Or even they will like call me or text me and say, hey, I'm feeling this way. This happened. What we can do about it? What do you think about it? What do you think it's best for me? So that's the level that I want with every athlete that I'm working with. They get to a point that there is so much connection between both parts that there's nothing that we cannot talk about. I think I do a better service for them instead of just me being, you know, the coach and just putting exercises in a program and we can then build up that relationship. And that is going to be even more helpful than just me being a coach and not even really talking with my athlete and knowing what's going on in their life. And if I'm not going to be the one who's going to be able to help, at least I know what's going on. And then I can provide another resource for my athlete, whether it's a psychologist, 
a manager or dietitian, whatever the case may be, am I going to be able to provide that for them? And that's so key. When I coach executives or leaders or even some warriors, it's the same thing. You have to build that trust. You have to build that rapport. Adversity either binds us together or it pulls us apart. And when that fighter is about to step in the ring, there's a lot of questions in their mind. I spoke to Sarah McMahon, the first woman to ever win a silver medal in the Olympics as a wrestler and a UFC Mm. fighter. And she was mentioning how that there's people that you see in the gym that are just dominating. They have the best sessions ever and they crush everybody there. Even people that have been there longer outweigh them, higher ranks. But yet, as you said, when they get in the ring, they step in the cage and the door closes. They have these questions. It's like, it's too late. Like we need to have had those questions answered Right. Question again and answer again well before we get in there because if you wait until that time, that's the sad part to see somebody that goes through all these things. And again, as a trainer, that's your job. You have to sniff that out even before they see it. And you have to be willing to point this out to them so they can get in front of it. Because if you say it and they're like, no, 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 I'm going to be fine. It's like, no, no, no. Just like you said, you can tell by even the amount of time that they walk into the gym. Like if they're supposed to be there at 1030 and they walk and they're normally there at 10 and they yes. come in at 1035, it's like, Mm-hmm. something's different, what happened? And they're like, no, everything's good. And then you can see they're not focused. They're rushing their warm up. They're slacking on their technique and now they're going to get hurt. It's like, okay, if you can't question them now and unpack that, there's no way you're going to be able to serve them when they need you the most right before they get into the ring or the mat or whatever the arena is for them. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's just sometimes coaches lose sight of that. And it's like, no, we need to go hard. We need to push. We need to do the drills, so-and-so, you've been lazy, you're not hustling hard enough, you're not pushing hard enough, what's going on? And sometimes it's not that, you know, sometimes it's like there's an underlying thing going on in there, but like you said, it, it needs to be addressed way before, not when they're stepping into a cage. And on top of that, we have fans, big arenas, the media, some athletes don't know how to deal with all that, you know, the limelight being in the spotlight, all the interviews sometimes. Sometimes they're not so outgoing. They don't love the fact of getting in front of a camera or getting asked questions. So it's just a matter as well of learning how to deal with all of the things that comes with being an athlete. And that's something, again, the UFC is in Vegas, so people will bet on these fighters. So that's an additional element that can get into the fighter's head. Well, I'm a two-to-one underdog here. Or I'm getting DMs from people on whatever social media I'm on that's saying, I just put 10K on you. You better fucking knock this guy out in a second or something Mm. like that. It's like, this is not at all what that fighter needs. Like this fighter just needs to go execute on their plan and be present to that moment so that they can actually perform. But if they have all this additional ancillary stress that nobody else really thinks about, then that can absolutely be the straw that breaks that camel's back. Mm -hmm. And you were saying also how that there are these metrics that you look at as a trainer, as a strength and conditioning coach, is heart rate variability in there? What are you kind of looking for, for these kind of ideas to give you this metric of where we stand and how they're adapting or if they're overtrained or what their next level of training needs to be? Right. So heart rate variability is one of the tools that I use as a monitoring tool. So I might use heart rate variability acute workload ratio and i'll tell you what is it sometimes counter movement jump as a fatigue index as well or even just simple questions like rp scale like how hard was training today or even like how do you feel do you feel tired yeah i'm crushed i'm like a super tired i feel fatigued i don't feel like going 
sometimes even that type of feedback is the easiest and the most accurate one, <laughs> right? Or like I said, the way that they walk in the gym, you can tell right away, like, mm, they're not so ready to, <laughs> to go hard today. But heart rate variability, it's a really nice way and it's um, accurate, I would say, metric. It's different than just asking a question, right? Because we have data in there. So heart rate variability is just a, a good way to know how the autonomic nervous system is working. Are we overstimulating your nervous system or we're in the sweet spot or we're just not training enough? So the more variance we have in heart rate, the better. That means there is readiness in the athlete. So the athlete is ready to go. If there's not enough variance in the heart rate, then something is off. It's either we're overreaching because it's kind of hard to overtrain, but it, there's cases. Definitely, there are some cases. And also we can tell, oh, your sleep quality is not good enough. You're not sleeping very well. You're not hydrating enough. You're depleted. So we can say, okay, you know what? If there's not enough variance in your heart rate, then probably we need to start doing a little bit more of a parasympathetic type of training, meaning, right, we can auto-regulate your nervous system instead of being on fight-flight mode all the time. Then we can just kind of regen and do some lighter stuff, you know, that can build up your system back again. Because there's sometimes as well, we see cases where there is overstimulation of sympathetic nervous system. So the parasympathetic, it's high. Why? Because the body's trying to compensate and say, hey, I'm overstimulated. So I'm going to go into parasympathetic mode because you're overstimulating the sympathetic nervous system. So they start being lazy, let's say, super tired, sleepy, like yeah, they're yawning, they're yawning in the middle of the class. Yeah. Yes, they have a hard time like really starting, get going, they're sleepy all the time. So that's overstimulation as well of the sympathetic nervous system. But there's an over like use of parasympathetic because the body's trying to regulate. And there's other times where we just see like overstimulation of sympathetic nervous system and they just want to go hard, hard, hard all the time. And they have a hard time to kind of like slow down a little bit. We see both spectrums so i would recommend to use heart rate variability as a data as an accurate number that will let you know that you need to like either push harder or just kind of pull back a little bit into training or at least to incorporate other modalities of training in there and that's so key because i've always said that emotions assassinate the truth Mm -hmm. So sometimes the way that we feel, like you say, if I look at, if you use Whoop or if you have other metrics where you look at a heart rate variability and you can look at that yeah. and you think to yourself, oh, I feel a little bit tired today or I'm not sure if I can push. When you have those metrics in front of you, it kind of helps you say, listen, maybe mentally there's something going on, but physically yeah. my body is ready. Yes. And so that can yeah. tell us, listen, at this point, there's no reason physically for me to not be able to train or push exactly. to a higher level. And that's where it's hard, especially in the fighter's mind, like if they feel burned out or they feel like they're overstimulated. The other component is you're talking about supplementation. So you right. have a fighter that's training twice, maybe three times a day. They get up, they do their morning drills or they do their road work. Maybe at noon they have striking and then they're saying, man, I'm tired. So then they take pre-workout or some sort of supplementation before their 8 p.m. workout. And now they're like, oh my God, I can't sleep. I feel I really tired. And it sounds so silly when we're kind of talking about it. It's like, how can you not see that? But when you're the fighter and you're the one that's in the fray, sometimes you think, well, this is what I need to get through. And now what yeah. happens? Now your sleep 
is not very high quality. Now you're not able to actually unwind. And then what happens that a fighter already has a certain amount of anxiety when you have extra amounts of caffeine and all these other supplementations that really create the synergistic effect between anxiety, caffeine, all these other ideas. Now it's even more overwhelming. And now when you see that fighter at 8 a.m. for their strength and conditioning workout, it's like, is maybe a very different person that you're walking on the map. Yeah, totally. hundred percent. Because that's why it's very important to have non-objective and objective data, right? Because sometimes, like you said, sometimes fighters will be like, yeah, I'm tired, but no, they're ready to go. That can happen yeah. as well. They might be lying to you or they might be lying to themselves. You know, like, no, I don't feel like going, but it's probably a mental thing or something happened during the day or, you know, at home wherever the case may be, but if we have numbers, then we're sure that we can go or we just need to kind of rest, right? Or deload. And then, like you said, supplementation, or sometimes it's just one thing, just mm. one variable that can throw everything off. I have one fighter that he has a hard time cutting weight. So we recently started like working and really like seeing, okay, what do we need to do in order for you to make weight? So we started working with a dietitian and he started like making this mistake of, I'm going to eat this cookie here and there. So I'm going to run a little bit more. Or I'm going to like oh. work harder. I'm going to like push a little bit harder on my next session. But he was like, well, I never did it. I was just like grabbing or snacking stuff here and there, but I would never like do the extra stuff that I was like thinking in my mind, like, yeah, I'm going to just like burn it off. I'm just going to do more road work. So we were like, oh, no, no wonder why you're not dropping the weight. <laughs> so we have those scenarios as well that it can happen. It absolutely can. And for those of you that don't think that's a big deal, like you said, a few cookies over a couple of days, like that literally can be the separation between them making that weight and what them not doing it. And if they think that they are going to work it off, maybe they do. But when they do that, now they're going into the red. Now they're not able to recover. Now they're not able to perform. They're not able to be focused the way that they need to. So in a lot of ways, it's easier to just avoid the noose than struggle the snare. Leave it alone, guys. Just you're, you're a warrior, a fighter. Let's focus on this thing that we're trying to get to. Yeah. And speaking of weight cuts, there is a lot of antiquated bad advice about trying to cut weight. And I understand if you're a fighter that's in the UFC or been in like MMA, you come from mm -hmm. a wrestling background. So in your mind, you're like, oh, I can cut 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds. But eventually, especially if you're a fighter that's putting on muscle, especially if you're getting better with your metabolism, if you do that, one, it's not sustainable. Two, there's a lot of health risk in there. So tell us about how it's normally done and tell us about the dangers and then tell us what you do with your athletes to make sure that they can be healthy, show up and perform yeah. the way they need to. Well, first of all, I mean, I work in an interdisciplinary way, meaning... I always rely on other professionals, not just myself, because right. we're a team at the end of the day. So my number one advice is hire a dietitian, a sports dietitian that has worked with weight class sports. So we're talking about combat sports, right? People that know how to cut weight. Because sometimes we have dietitians that have worked with different sports, but they don't have any idea of weight cutting. The weight cut process is it's the most grueling process, I would say. It's the hardest part of being a fighter is making weight. Why? Because it's so physical and mentally draining. Number one, hire a dietitian and always communicate between components. Like I said, non-technical and technical, which is strength and conditioning. And then 
the sport itself with other coaches as well. Because if we don't know, like what we initially talked about, if we don't know the volume, the intensity, the type of session that we're doing, then the dietitian as well is going to be lost. How do we feel properly? And I would advise to get like a good, either it's a DEXA scan, if you can get a DEXA scan, because sometimes it's hard to get one because you need a lab for that. But at least if you get a good number of biopedance or skin folds, you can get a good number in there just to make sure where you at in body composition. That way we know, okay, this is what we need to lose. Because there are some cases I've had fighters that, I don't know, the fighters that have a hard time cutting weight, they always come to me like, hey, I need to like lose 20 and I fight in two weeks. Like, <laughs> and oh, I'm like, God. okay, not so good idea. <laughs> so That's I've been true. like in situations where I call them the rescue, like weight cut, like rescue thing. I don't advise to do that, but sometimes it's like, we got to do it. Because there, there's a lot of things at stake at risk when it comes to their career. First is that, and then we get, if we get good numbers, then we know where we at exactly. So there's fighters that definitely can do performance fight camps, meaning there's no risk when it comes to weight cutting. They're at a good percentage. Normally we advise for them or I advise them. And I say we, because sometimes there's numbers that the UFC Performance Institute has. There's a cross-sectional volume that they did. And there's numbers on the 600 roster that they have, which is a, huge roster and we've seen around 16 percent off camp they can walk around above 16 percent their weight class 16 percent so above, explain that to, okay above so 16 percent right. above the weight class so meaning if they're fighting phantom weight 135 we add 16 percent you can walk around that tops Right. If you're lower than that, even better. Right. But what we're looking for at two weeks out, let's say, it's around 8 to 10% above weight class. That can tell us if we're going to have a, a good outcome, a good weight cut, 8 to 10% tops two weeks out of the fight. That's a good number. So those are numbers that we kind of like aim for during the fight camp or even off camp. But there's fighters that, we cannot do performance camps. Why? Because they're way too above those numbers. So basically it becomes a camp where we just work on body composition. We cannot do much about power development. We cannot do much about speed or change of direction. It's more about cardiac output, longer intervals, more about work capacity, really working within certain ranges of heart rate. They can start dropping the weight. It is not the best thing, honestly. Those are the camps that I hate. I don't like them. You cannot do like a lot of adaptations physically. So I sit down with them and I say, listen, you're way above weight class. So this is going to be just like a body composition camp. There's not much about power development. You cannot come to me and say, hey, Melissa, I want to be super powerful. Like I want to have like that knockout power. I want to be fast. I want to be explosive. I want to be able to go round after round without getting tired. I'm like, that's not going to happen. Okay. Number one priority right now is making weight. So we need to make adjustments around that. So what I do is I sit down with a dietitian, and then if I can talk to the other coaches as well, we'll do it too. And if not, it's majorly 
I would say, communication between strength and conditioning and the dietitian. We have like a monitoring sheet where we have the number of sessions, RPE scale, minutes of work. What are we doing? That way the dietitian starts adjusting depending on the intensity, right? So right. fueling properly around training and then start like cutting those calories and start depleting because pretty much in those cases when they're so above the weight class is just being depleted. <laughs> Sometimes it's like eating very few calories, not what we want or the probably the best scenario, but it's just what it takes for them to start kind of dropping. But sometimes also I advise fighters not to go overboard in physical training or technical sessions because the body is already depleted. You're not consuming enough calories, so you're not feeling properly. And if you're training, overtraining, and then you're doing a lot of sessions, then your body starts holding onto all that weight because it's protecting itself. It's saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, it's not feeding me. I'm going to hold onto everything. I'm not going to drop the weight. I know because I have a case right now with a fighter as well. They get so worried and anxious that they start doing everything. I want to go run. I want to go swim. I want to do strength and conditioning. I want to do two sparring sessions and wrestling and this and that so I can drop the weight. And I'm like, "Mm -mm -mm -mm. wait, where are you going? If you start adding so many sessions and a lot of things on your plate, your body is going to start getting confused and it's not going to like it. Calm down. Just allow your body to adapt to the process, just follow whatever the dietitian is telling you about. And then we can just see how are you reacting to, to the program itself. And it's kind of like it, right? And by itself, the weight cutting process, it's like, it depends on the fighter's needs and also what they like when it comes to weight cutting. There's guys who like to or athletes that love cutting weight on the sauna. There's other athletes that love the bath. So we need to make sure, like every time that I work with a fighter, I always ask a bunch of questions. We do like a whole history when it comes to strength and conditioning, but also weight cutting history. How you have cut weight before? How many pounds do you normally cut? Which methods do you use? That way we know, okay, what the fighter kind of like feels more comfortable with when it comes to the weight cutting process. There's fighters who get a lot of anxiety from the process because they've had bad cause in the past. When it comes to that, we do follow a heat acclimation process. And like I said, the UFC Performance Institute has a heat acclimation process. They have a new one right now, but we've been using that with some fighters that get anxious or like PTSD from weight cutting. So we kind of adjust the fighter to be acclimated to that process. So there's some sessions that we do every day or so with certain time, hydration process and all of that. So the body becomes acclimated to the process of weight cutting. And we've seen great results because when the time comes to really cut weight, the body is already adapted and then the water starts dropping because there are some cases that we've seen as well. The body's so stressed out that it will stop sweating. No sweat. And we're like, he's been there like for 30, 35 minutes and not sweating. So when we do heat acclimation, that allows the body to kind of really like drop the water and start like sweating because we hydrate themselves like during the process of heat acclimation. So it's not like the weight cut that it's so grueling that you're depleted, no carbs, no fiber, no sodium, no water. 
it's not like that. The heat acclimation process is just like a training for the wake up. And mm -hmm. sometimes there might be like mock-ups, like wake up mock-ups. Yeah, that gets them mentally acclimated. And like you're saying, if this fighter thinks that doing more is going to be the answer, they don't understand yes. that they're actually setting themselves up to fail. Or again, that's when the fighter gets injured. That's when the fighter loses focus for just a second. And now they tweak their shoulder or their knee or whatever it is, or an old injury comes back up because they're not being present. And had they just not eaten that cookie or had they just drank more water when they were supposed to and got acclimated in a heat capacity, now they feel, because that's where that confidence comes from. And back to the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how when the fighter steps in the ring, everything you've done up to this point now is out of your control and now you have to step in here. So doing all these steps, and like you said, talking about their mindset, their strength and conditioning, understanding their biometrics, what's going on, their glycogen levels, all these things, it's so mm -hmm. key because now you can give them the advice they need because, and here's the thing, unless you fought in the ring or even if you have, when you're on the outside, it's very easy to critique that person. Hey, keep your hands up. Hey, you're not exploding into that shot. Hey, you're not sprawling the way you're supposed to. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, because you don't have the adrenaline dump, the fear, the anticipation, the anger, whatever it is. But it's too late at that point if I'm on the outside trying to yell at this person. If I was actually doing my job properly, like you said, I get to know who this fighter is. I know what their tendencies are. I understand that they may be the person that's very aggressive when they train hoping that that's yeah. going to allow them to get where they need to go. But again, as a coach, sometimes our goal is to pull them back. It's like, no, no, no. I want you to pump the brakes a little bit. I want you to try to get a nap this afternoon. I want you to do this, this, and this. Again, sympathetic, parasympathetic, all these things will serve them in the long run. But you've been there so often. You've been there with different fighters. You can see the lay of the land well before they do. And that's why you're at the top of your profession. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it takes that clinical eye, you know, with time you get, you get the expertise and you kind of already know because every one of the, you know, athletes that I work with, they're totally different from weight classes, personalities, background, culture, everything in between. So you got to be flexible enough and you got to be very careful the way that you handle stuff as well with certain fighters. Not everyone likes certain stuff and you need to be able to be a good communicator with your guys and your athletes because it takes time. It takes time to get to know them. But as fast as you start like getting to know them, then you will realize like, okay, we need to work on this. We need to adjust this or do that. Or you know what? Hold on. You're going overboard on this. And sometimes they don't like it. You know, it's because that's the fighter mentality. They feel like they're not like, pushing in every way they're not doing enough and sometimes it's just a matter of like hey just a heads up if you keep on doing this we're gonna get injured you have an upcoming fight just be careful so sometimes it's just taking that time to really kind of have that conversation with them and that's where that warrior mentality comes in not just this idea of pushing harder but a warrior is actually able to adapt they're able to see the lay of the land they're able to anticipate what's going to happen next Mm -hmm. Not only with the fight when they're in the heat of battle, but also leading up to that fight. So again, if they have bad experience in the past with their performance, weight cut, trainers, whatever it is, hopefully the fighter is self-aware enough to say, okay, this is what I would normally do here. But when I did that before, I blew out my knee or I hurt my neck or mm -hmm. I didn't make weight or I made weight. But then when I rehydrated, I felt like shit. And then I, I should have just performed at 175 instead of trying to get down to 150 because mm -hmm. that would have been the better performance for them 
So it takes so much of that. And that's why doing what you're doing is so important. So when you have a person who there's a lot of professional fighters that are listening to us, but there are going to be some people that are amateur fighters or amateur performance like athletes. Could you give us some tips on what to do to set themselves up before the event so that they can perform to the best of their ability? And I know some of them may be doing endurance stuff, some of them may be doing anaerobic CrossFit type stuff, whatever it is, but could you give us some kind of general outlines to help them perform to the best of their capacity at that event? First of all, I would say you need to have in mind what's your end goal. Do you really want to be a professional fighter? Do you want to like take the leap between, you know, like being an amateur and then just go into the big leagues? Because there's a huge difference in there. It's totally different monster. It's definitely harder. It requires a lot of sacrifice in so many ways and levels. So just, first of all, be aware. Being a fighter, it's not a game. Being a fighter, it's like the name itself, it's explanatory. So first of all, be clear on that. And then if you're definitely like sure that you want to be a professional fighter or that you're in the process of becoming one, I would sit down and say, okay, how durable do I want to be in my career? If I want to be a durable fighter or just want to like spend just a couple of years fighting professionally, then just it's just a different story. But if I definitely want to be a durable one, then I would start feeling properly. I would try to even look for resources to kind of like feel good properly around training. Sleep is number one, definitely. Sleep is key for performing in any level that you put out there, whether you're professional or not professional. So just taking care of that. And then as well, I would say really being careful with the amount and volume of training. You don't need to go crazy at the beginning stages of your career. It's more about development, technical development, like technical proficiency. Learn the technique develop as a fighter, lay a foundation. And it also, if you don't have a strength and conditioning foundation or expertise, let's say your training age, it's not there when it comes to strength and conditioning, then I would start laying the foundation and really having that 52-week camp mentality, meaning you're not just preparing for an eight-week or six-week fight camp. And I even tell this to my professional guys, hey, like you're not just working during eight weeks, this is like a 52-week thing. Why? Because we don't have seasons. We're in the sport of if you're getting a good fight next week and you need to be ready like next week or in two weeks, we need to be ready. Yeah. Why? Because probably it might be the fight of your life. We don't know. It's yeah. going to be a big card and you need to be ready for that opportunity when it comes. So it's just more about having the mentality of, okay, Yes, I'm working 52 weeks. Definitely, it's not the same pace, not the same volume or programming. But at least if we don't have an upcoming fight, we know that we need to develop and work on certain gaps. Because that's one of the biggest mistakes I see, whether you're an amateur or professional, is they don't get the importance of a general preparation phase, meaning off-camp phase. And the off-camp, it's what it lays a foundation for your upcoming fight camp. It's where you can really build up, is where you can really correct mistakes, is where can you like work on capacities development or physical development. FICAM is just to kind of like sharpen the sword and make weight. So if you're not working off cam, then you're doing a disservice to yourself. You really need to make sure that you're building up that foundation during off cam and then transition into the corresponding phases that it comes after general 
face. So that would be like my advice to really kind of like sit down and say, okay, just have a little bit more of structure, even though you're an amateur. There's a bunch of resources out there that are free. If you don't have the money, just let's say to have a, to hire a dietitian or a strength and conditioning coach, there's great resources that you can just look up and see, okay, where I'm at and then what can I start incorporating into my training? And Melissa has some great resources and we'll talk about that near the end here. But I'd like to ask you a question. And this was interesting when it happened a few years ago, there was a fighter that was in the gym that I was training in and, and training some people in. He had a fight and he won the fight quickly, very quickly. When that happened, he had this adulation. He had this feeling of, wow, I'm, I'm a badass. I did great. Can mm-hmm. you explain to us the danger of winning quickly like that? And frankly, all the things that we had worked on with this fighter went out the window once they got in the ring. So tell us about the danger of winning a fight quickly like that, especially if you weren't doing the right things. Danger meaning mentally or physically? Both, yes. Both. Well, I mean, if it wasn't part of the fight plan, then something else happened in there. And there's different scenarios that... I don't know the person you know better about this case, but I've seen cases where, let's say, the fight plan has been followed, but it's not working. And then the fighter sticks to the plan and they end up losing. And then when they go out, they will be like, well, I was following the plan. I was listening to my corners. I was doing everything and it didn't work. And I panicked. I didn't do anything. So this is why I tell to my guys sometimes I'm like, okay. Yes, you have a fight plan, but if you see that it's not working and then you have the proficiency and then you know how to do it and win, then just take action. Don't just wait for your corners or someone to scream at you that what you need to do because at the end of the day, you're the one who steps into that cage and fight. So you're just fighting on your own. But there's also other cases or scenarios where like, oh, I just don't listen to my coaches and I just do whatever I want then there's no respect for the work of your coaches. There's no respect for what they're doing and all the work, hard work they're putting into you. So that's a totally different story. And it's more like about sitting down with the fighter and saying, hey, we're doing this for you. We're a team. But there's also some levels as well of hierarchy that you need to respect. Mm-hmm. And if you're not going to be able to follow through, then, then you're not going to be able to be part of this team. And it is what it is. So it just kind of depends on the relationship between coach and and athlete in there. And like I said, sometimes that can get up into your head and be like, oh, I did great. I don't need anyone. I don't need coaches because I can do it myself. And then you become so cocky that eventually time will tell you that you're you're wrong. It's life. And life and inviting it will knock you down at some point and it will make you realize that you're not so good. That you definitely need guidance and then definitely you need to really be careful because sometimes if you end up doing whatever you think it's best and doing whatever you want without following the structure, you can put yourself as well into physical danger as well. And that's why it's so important because in that moment, you have to decide, you have to figure out what the right thing is. In the heat of battle, we're clouded. Your vision gets really small. Even there's been times when you can yell at that fighter from the ring or you've been the guy in the ring, you can't hear anything. You can maybe hear the breathing of the guy that you're fighting and everything else goes black, even though it's so loud around you. So there's a lot of stuff that people don't understand. And that's kind of what I was pointing out because to this fighter, 
they thought that they had done well and they won the fight handedly. And even after we had dinner and we celebrated, it was like, we're really proud of you and you did great. But when we showed the film, it was when the light bulb went off and he was like, holy shit. It's like, yes, you dropped your hands here. Look, you telegraphed that technique. Look, there were three places where you should have been able to cut this off before it got to there. Now you had a better technical prowess in this particular range. You happen to be taller. You had a better range for your kick or your punts. You were able to connect. And there are always going to be those situations. But in the end of the day, sustainably, everything leading up to that, other than that one punch that knocked them out, everything yeah. leading up is wrong. And it's hard for them to see that, especially when they're victorious and people are like raising them up or they're jumping on the side of the cage and they feel like they're superheroes. So that's where that humility of the warrior comes in. And I'm going to say something that probably is going to be polarizing, but hey. Yes, do it. Sometimes I think it's better for certain fighters to lose. Absolutely. Seriously, sometimes I believe certain athletes need to lose. Why? Because they need that wake-up call of reality and just to kind of like, hey, humble yourself because otherwise you're going to get lost into this. And and you can tell not even by when they step into the cage, but the whole process of it, they're so into that persona and them being certain way that you're like, uh-uh, not my friend. You need to just step down and be humble and because otherwise life is going to humble you and it's going to be in front of everyone but sometimes what it takes for them to realize what it really takes and it's really just a humble experience i would say just a live experience and definitely some fighters need that because it's when you learn not when you win it's when you lose when you learn so that way you can correct a lot of things and just okay realize where you're standing and say okay this is what I need. This is the people that I need around me and my team. This is the decisions that I need to make or the behaviors that I need to have during my prep. Yeah, pain and discomfort are the best teachers and humility prevents humiliation if we're willing to yeah. deploy it. I want to be respectful of your time and thank you so much for everything that you've given us. What I was wanting to ask you is, again, adversity for many times, that's what is our litmus test that helps us see what we're really made of because it strips away all the stuff that we're not and it gets down to who we really are. And for fighters, we run into that over and over again. And as a trainer, you've run into that. But to do what you're doing, you have to have gone through some hardship in your life and overcome it to be able to want to walk this path. Can you tell us about an adversity that you faced that at the time you didn't know if you would make it through, but yet once you got around it, once you got through it, you saw the gift in that adversity? Wow, I have so many. Yeah, like I would say for my background, I come from a different country. This is my second time moving into a different country. So I guess that's one of like the biggest changes and adversities that you can face as well. This is my most recent one. I moved here to Florida 11 months ago, just with one suitcase with my dreams and just say, you know what, I'm just going to take the leap and do it because I want to do it. I just want to make sure that I'm really live in my purpose and no one is going to come to me and say oh you should do this or someone is going to tell me their story and I'm not going to be able to live it myself so that was one of the times as well the most recent ones but also like I've dealt with personal losses like my father I didn't get to know him he died before I was born it's just been my mom and I and she has done such an amazing job. She's the best. And, you know, like dealing with that as well. And then I lost like my grandpa and my uncle under a terrible circumstance, violence, I would say. So 
it's like I've dealt like with a couple of things in life, you know, and every time you just realize how resilient you are. And sometimes we believe that you get thrown out of uh, stuff that you are not going to be able to overcome, right? But it's just a matter of perspective. Life is just a matter of a perspective. Majority of the times you can feel pity or, you know, for yourself and just cry, which is not bad to cry. I do it once in a while, not going to lie. But it's just like, okay, I get a good cry. And then just like, no, 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 I got this. Let's get going. And for me, being here, being a different experience, coming here with, like I said, one suitcase and then nothing. But I was like, I came here and started like working and working with the good people, good team and just building up for myself as well. And just kind of believing in myself because sometimes it's just, you just got yourself. You got to believe in you. You got to believe in your dreams and that you're capable enough to really make it and conquer whatever you need to conquer in life. So it's just life. The game of life is going to throw you up so many times and it's going to humble you and it's going to throw you a lot of bull curves. So it is what it is sometimes. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, adversity forces us to level up. And yeah. there are some people that go through hardship and they just stay stuck in that place and they never grow from it. What is it that makes one person stay afraid and never live their purpose? And another person that says, you know what, fuck it. I only have one life. I'm going to go out there and do this. Is that something that's just born within us or is it something that we cultivate or does it take that adversity to kick us in the ass and say, listen, you don't have any other choice. What are you going to respond to now? I guess it's a mix of both. Honestly, I can see that in myself from my culture and my mom and the way she is. It was the way she raised me up. She always was like, no, 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 you need to be brave. You need to like take the leap. You need to go push. Doesn't matter. If you make mistakes, it's fine. It's part of my culture. And as well, I saw that in, in my family, like from South America and Colombia, we're like, naturally, we like to push. We like yes. to, you know, go beyond. Even though we might not have the resources, we create them. That's a very cultural thing over there. If we don't have a way, we just figure it out. Either create it, invent it, whatever you want to call it. So that's a very cultural thing, but also the way that you're raised, it also kind of like impacts the way that you perceive things or push through in life. But also I would say it's just human nature of the fear of uncertainty. But there's nothing certain in this life other than you're going to die. That's the only certain thing in life. Other than that, the rest is just uncertain. You're here one day, the next one, like even the next minute, you don't know if you're going to go out of your house and you're going to die in the middle of the road. I think if we live through that lens of saying, hey, I just get one life. This is the youngest I am in my life at this point. So if we, if we see life through that lens, then I think it's just easier to push through and say, fuck it, I'm going to take the leap. I'm going to do it. Even though it's scary, I don't have anything to lose other than if I don't do it, then I'm going to regret it. But I know there's people that don't have that in themselves. Not everyone was born to be great. Not everyone. It might sound harsh, but I even talk to this with my fighters and I tell them like, hey, I already know who's going to make it. And I already know who's going to make it in the big leagues. And I know who's not going to make it. 
because not everyone is born for greatness because greatness it entails a lot of things it's not just like stepping into a cage and being the best fighter and having the belt it's more than that it's like in life how do you carry yourself outside that cage like are you really doing the things that make you great or is it just something for the camera or for having a belt it's just like it entails different things it's more complex than that so i know there's people who have it there's people who don't we can all have it but there's people who are not going to do it and they're going to get stuck in that mentality of being afraid and not pushing and i mean i don't judge it's just a fact it's absolutely the reality and the way that we conduct ourselves in the face of adversity is an indication of if we're going to achieve greatness or if we're going to just sit there and talk about it and not be about it because talk is cheap that's why this podcast is called Oxygen on Verb. It's like, are you going to talk? Because I've noticed that the people that are talking the most are the ones doing the least. A fighter that's actually humble and quiet and coachable and just allows their performance to represent who they are. You can know how much work they've done, what happens when they ring that bell. There's not a doubt in your mind. But at the same time, the people that are more willing to speak and talk a big game, sometimes they're doing that out of fear whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, actions don't lie. And that's what we have to keep in mind every time we're doing something. Yeah, a thousand percent. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Gracia, thank you for everything. How can we hire you? How can we learn more about you and everything that you're doing, Melissa? Yeah, definitely. I do work remotely. I do have quite a few athletes that I work with remotely. They can reach out to me through my email or my Instagram where I'm the most active. They can send a DM to me as well. And I have resources in there as well, a couple of videos or stuff, or, or they always can reach out to me and ask questions. I'm always happy to answer questions. I have people who reaches out to me and say, hey, what about this or that? Or, or when I post something, they will have more questions. But you also get to work with me remotely. If you're not here based in Florida, then definitely we can do that as well. So either Instagram or email, it's the easiest way. Absolutely. And she has great stuff on Instagram. I followed her for a long time. We've been connected for a while. And again, she did a great post on the weight cuts and how this is Mm -hmm. not sustainable. This is not great. And if you follow the fight game, whether it be boxing or MMA, there's probably a few people that come to mind that we've seen that miss weight more than once. And it's cost them not just that purse, but like their career because they don't have that ability to do their homework. They've been able to slide under the line at the last second every time. But that's why it's important to have a person like Melissa in your corner because she's going to cut through the bullshit and say, listen, you can either act like a professional or you can act like an amateur who happens to be professionals on occasion. And if you're wanting to be great, you're not going to do it unless you're actually putting in the work and do it the right way. Totally. So you can reach out to me and there's resources out there. And if it's not me, I know there's quite a few if you want to like ask, I can send you over. I work with a bunch of great dietitians as well from the UFC they can work with you as well if you're not directly in the roster. That's great. That's a great resource as well. And they're always willing to help. So that's part of their job too. And or other strength and conditioning coaches that I definitely relied or trust, then I can also refer you to them. So it's Melissa, double S, Prieto with double I, P-R-I-I-E-T-O, Prieto. So that's my Instagram. And then my email, it's the same. Melissa Prieto at gmail.com. Fantastic. 
Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. And thank you for the work that you're doing. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was such a great chat. Thank you. I think so too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.